When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that his face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and as he commanded them, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, this morning, um, we're here in the 20th Sunday of 24 in ordinary time. Thank you, Josh, for getting that. And I may cue you at different points here. But we're in the 24th, we're in the 20th Sunday of 24 in ordinary time. And now, after 18 Sundays... Uh, we're, we're ready here to conclude our Exodus series. So you're going to get the very end. You get the last, last page, Logan and Nicole. Next week, um, Pastor Jeff's going to start kind of, I guess, a second annual. We did it last week, what we call uh, a Saints series. We're going to be talking about um, some Christians, both past and present, who exemplify and point to Christ through their lives. One of the things that we've said over the course of all of these weeks is that in this time that we've been going through Exodus, we've seen how God's plan of salvation for all creation was at work, even then, even there. And in the same way that God's plan of salvation is equally at work here and now among all of you. And my hope this morning is that as we meditate on Moses' veil, the veil through which creation draws near to God's own glory. You're also prepared in thanksgiving to be able to come to this table, which is the earthly veil of God's life and his love for you. As I was preparing for this morning, I felt like because we have this passage that has Moses' veil in it, I think I have a historical reconstruction of that veil. Do you all want to know what that veil would have been like when Moses was talking to the people? You guys have the desire? I know. Yes, I, I do too. So this is my, my historical, I, I'm telling you, I did a lot of research on this. I want you guys to know and feel what it was like when Moses had the veil on. I'm pretty sure that this is historically accurate, but you can get the sense. This is what it would have felt like as Moses was going to the people. I actually don't know if it was this opaque. Maybe it was more gauzy. I needed, I needed some eye holes here. But the veil here is really important for this story, and I would argue for the very end of Exodus. I'm not going to make you guys look through the veil the whole time. I look like I'm ready for, for trunk or treat, huh? That's what people are really doing. You know, if I show up in a costume like this, it's, because, it's not because I'm a ghost, it's because I'm Moses with the veil on. That's really what it is. But... As we're in this final moments of Exodus, we have an unexpected ending to an unexpected story. 
As we've been talking during this whole time, and you looked through Exodus, we kind of have God, the God who has created all things, who is transcendent over all things, in the story of Exodus, drawing nearer and nearer and nearer in creation. Ultimately, he comes to dwell among his people. And that's partly what makes this story unexpected. The gods don't do that. They're aloof. They don't care that much about what happens here. But God, the Lord, loves creation. And as you follow this story, everything is kind of moving towards this moment that you expect because all along the way, there's kind of been this struggle between God and between sin. God has been seeking to restore and to redeem creation. Sin, on the other hand, has kind of been waging and trying to keep it captive. As God has dwelt closer and closer in creation, sin has kind of been pushed more and more to the edge. And what you expect as you get to and through the story in Exodus is that ultimately there's going to be a moment when God has so filled creation with his presence, with his life, that sin is completely cast out of it. And we finally free and eternally united to God. But that's not where we end in Exodus. Where we end in Exodus in the last chapters, they describe in detail the making of the tabernacle and all of its instruments and all the people who will minister to it. On the one hand, the tabernacle is the place where God is said to dwell with his people. But importantly for the tabernacle, God's presence is still shrouded behind tents, behind clouds of incense, with very limited access to who can go into the presence of God. The tabernacle is, in some sense, the social or the congregational analog of Moses' veil. They both tell us the very same thing, that despite all of our anticipation, there is not at the end of Exodus the consummation of heaven and earth, the joining of God and creation that we had all hoped. There is still a veil in between. Even though Israel has been rescued from Egypt, they've only experienced the first fruit of the promise. They still await that which is coming, which in part is something that we know and is good because there's a lot of scriptures that follow the Exodus. But maybe the question for this morning is, is that as we finish this whole series that we've done and going through the book of Exodus, what does it mean for us that the Exodus, the deliverance of God's people, ends this way? If you were guessing, you guessed correctly, because I want to reflect on this veiled ending of Exodus by putting it in conversation with another story, a story that I love by C.S. Lewis. It's called, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. Veils feature very prominently in this story. In fact, one of Lewis's working titles for this story was Bareface, which is a play on being unveiled. And I feel like there's two veils in particular that are important to this story, at least in how it relates to Exodus. The first in Till We Have Faces is a metaphorical veil. It's not actually a veil at all, it's a palace. It's the palace of the god of the gray mountain. As the palace of a god, it's not always available or, or visible to human eyes. And at a critical moment in the story that Lewis tells here, 
When everything hinges on whether or not it can be seen, one of the principal characters, Psyche, is able to see this palace, this palace of the god of the Grey Mountain. Another of the characters, her name is Orwell, she's Psyche's elder sister, who has loved her and cared for her since Psyche was a child because her mother passed away. Orwell is unable to see this palace. Orwell believes that her sister has gone mad, has lost her mind. She's seeing things that aren't really there. And she wants to rescue her from this illusion, this delusion that she believes she's experiencing her. So she comes up with a plan to convince her that neither the palace nor the god of the Grey Mountain actually exist. Psyche is convinced that she is there, that she lives in the palace with the god of the Grey Mountain, but the god has prevented her, forbid her from seeing his face. And so Orwell tells her, because she can't see any of this stuff, just go ahead and look at it. There must be somebody who's deceiving or tricking you, just another person out there who's put all this in your head. Psyche is forced to ultimately does gaze upon the face of the god of the gray mountain whom she had been forbidden to see. But tragically, it's not Psyche who's delusional, but Orwell. She's the one in the wrong, and through her actions, she destroys her sister's happiness, her life. She's sent off into exile by doing the thing that she had been commanded not to do. Orwell is left when, uh, finally, after all of this happens, the god of the gray mountain appears to her and tells her what she did and that she was the one who resulted in the misery in her sister's life, the one person that Orwell loved most in the world. The question that Lewis has in his sight in this story is why, if the god of the gray mountain was there the whole time, why, if this palace existed that she couldn't see, didn't the god just make her be able to see it? Why did the god appear to her after the fact, but not before, to save her from doing this disaster that she inflicts upon her sister, Psyche? For Orwell, the whole reason she's the narrator of this story, the reason she writes this book, is that it's because the gods always work behind a veil. To endlessly confuse each of us, they show to one what they won't show to another. They'll confuse you, they play tricks on you, they lead you astray, and then they punish you for your unbelief. The second veil in this story happens in what you could say is the second act of Orwell's life. The first act is kind of all the way up through until she loses her sister Psyche and has all the joy and the delight taken out of her life. But in the second act, she wears a literal veil. Shortly after the events, Orwell takes to wearing a veil at all times over her face for the rest of her life. Ostensibly, and if you know this story, it's because she's ugly, as ugly as her sister Psyche is beautiful. But if you've read the story, you know it's partly due to the shame and the pain and the sorrow over what she had done to her sister. But the veil would cover over that. But Orwell figures out a fascinating thing happens when she wears a veil as she sees life through the other side of the veil. She discovers that, yeah, it certainly conceals her face. Nobody can see it. She's not the exact same Orwell that she was before. But in preventing others from seeing her face, it has another effect. Because after her father, the king, dies, it's also what helps her become the queen who can rule in the kingdom of which she is a part. 
You see, people wouldn't be able to bear her ordinariness. The fact that she was just another human, and not at that, that she was a woman, and even at that, that she was an ugly woman. But the veil proved to create this sense of awe, this strangeness around her, and so this sense of respect fitting to one who rules. The other interesting thing about the veil that she wears for the rest of her life is that people who would otherwise have been terrified or reluctant to speak to a queen find the veil almost as a buffer, this added layer of comfort and protection, and so are able to come before her in her presence. It's the veil that she wears that creates the space in which she's able to rule well and just and equitably, where she can navigate all the different expectations, opinions, ideas that people have on who she is or who she needs to be. It gives her the freedom to be both with and among the people, but also at the same time over and above them. Maybe, as you see what unfolds in Psyche's life as she wears that veil, the God's request that Psyche not look upon his face was reasonable, after all. At the end of Orwell's life, the very end of the book, she has a vision. She's already been queen for so many years. She's worn that veil. It feels like it was a long, long time ago what happened to Psyche. But in this vision, she's transported all the way back to that moment just after she's lost her sister. She experiences again the heartbreak and the anger at having lost her sister, and she accuses the gods of being silent when they could have saved her. Why did they prevent Orwell from seeing the palace? Because if she had just seen the palace, she would have known her sister was telling the truth. In the vision, she's taken before a judge who's going to hear what she calls her complaint against the gods. Importantly, in that moment, she's stripped of the veil that she's worn all those years since. And as she revisits the moment and she gives her complaint to the gods, and all the ways that she's thought about it in the years following, she has this incredible moment of self-awareness. She realizes that things aren't exactly the way that they had seemed to her then all those years ago. What she realizes as she has that veil stripped off and she's before this judge and she's giving this complaint is that she wasn't prevented from seeing that palace because she couldn't, but because she didn't want to. She didn't want there to be a God who could take her sister from her. She didn't want there to be a God who could steal her sister away and make her happy. She was comfortable with the way that her life was, her sister kind of wholly depending on her, after she had raised her all those years, she wanted her sister's love and it not to be divided. So she chose not to see that palace. Orwell blamed the gods for the misery that she had caused to her sister, but in truth, she had just wanted her sister all to herself. After Orwell hears herself give her complaint, there's this moment of total silence before the judge. And the judge asks her, are you answered? That is answered in the complaint that she gave. And then she says this. She says the complaint was the answer. Judge, you can, yeah, you can just follow me here. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Lightly people talk of saying what they mean. When the time comes at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, 
which you have all that time been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we know? This is the titular line here. How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? See, until we have faces, Lewis flips the question about the veil between heaven and earth or between the divine and the human on its head. The veil isn't one that the gods impose as though they're trying to shield themselves from us, but one that Lord imposes here in Exodus. It's one that we want to be able to keep God at a distance, to keep us safe from them, secure from them. It reminds me of that line in the Gospel of John, that people love the darkness rather than the light. I feel like till we have faces is based off of this moment in Exodus with Moses' veil. Because it's not that God seeks to hide or separate himself from creation. To the contrary, all we've seen in Exodus this whole time is God drawing near and closer. Rather, it's that creation seeks to run and hide. Just like our first parents after they had eaten the forbidden fruit and sought to hide from God and clothe themselves. Even today, even after Christ has come into the world, many still seek and try to hide. They want that veil up. Sometimes even those in the church. Maybe the question you would ask is why? Why would we want to hide? Why would we want that veil when we know that God is gracious and forgiving. But I think maybe we intuit some things even along with the congregation of Israel there. That if God has come into this world, if he's really here, if he's really filling this presence, this place, if he really wants to make me holy, then I should be all better, right? Then everything in my life should be set. then leaves that persistent question, what if I'm not? What if I believe, what if I have faith in God, but I still struggle with sadness or or anger or bitterness? What if I still feel jealous? What if I claim the power of Christ being worked in my life and I still struggle with addiction or things that I don't want to be a part of my life or bad habits? What do I do when it seems like everybody else around me is experiencing this powerful, transforming grace, and I'm still, still there at work? And we're tempted to just go along to get along. And there's this desire then to hide, to conceal from God and say, well, God, if, if this isn't just going to be a, a quick moment, a quick fix altogether, to have to come humbly and contritely before God again and again and again. I just accept that there's going to be a veil between me and God. It's too difficult to have to face again and again the sin that I know lives close and near to me. I've always loved this switchfoot song called Company Car. And in that song, the singer laments that as he's grown older, His dream and vision for life has become about just things and accomplishments, like the company car he drives. 
But at one point in the song where there's this moment of transparent honesty, the singer sings this. He says, all the king's horses at the foot of the wall, they're taking pictures of the man who's lost all of his masks of pretension. He's got two faces left, hiding tears and fear that burns like an engine. It drives him away from the ones that he loves. We're one and the same. We're the faceless combatants and the loneliest game. I always love that line. We're the faceless combatants. As though we're still wearing a veil and, as it says until we have faces, trying to gain that face, trying to see who we really are, waiting for God to reveal it to us. But how often are we fearful or afraid of finding that out and maybe thinking that God or others wouldn't really love us if they knew who we truly were? Maybe the question that till we have faces in that song are often asking us, that I think is at work here in Exodus 34, is how often are we the ones who are hiding from God or from others, or even from ourselves, and then accuse God of being the one who's distant? So first, I think here as we get to the end of Exodus, I feel like this story, these last chapters encourage us to be able to come to God humbly and honestly. For Exodus, God is among us. He's dwelling with us. And Moses' veil reminds us that oftentimes we're more comfortable with something between us and God so that I can give this illusion, I can conceal these things about me that I want to hide, that I know are less than they should be. But Jesus teaches us here that if we desire to see God face to face, or sorry, Jesus teaches us in general, not necessarily in Exodus 34. We are called to be honest and humble. This is what we call confession and repentance. Moses, in Exodus, doesn't see God's glory face to face because he's special or because he's merited it or because he's somehow earned it. I think Moses, after all those years, after God calling him from being in the, the wilderness there and then leading Israel back into the wilderness, has seen as he comes before God that we are nothing, that we are dust and ashes. He's seen our humility. He's seen that before the eternal God, we are ultimately nothing, and even all of our good deeds are like rags. But he's able to embrace it. And precisely as he embraces that, he comes to know the goodness of a God whose love for us is greater even than our nothingness, even than our sin. So last week as Israel is in the midst of sin, he's able to come before God realizing our weakness and still yet again ask God for the thing that God is faithful to, for God's faithfulness, for his mercy. And what Exodus would counsel us here in these moments is, is that if we would be open to seeing the glory of God, we wouldn't see it because we're worthy, but because we're willing to let go of everything in our life that opposes or takes away from our ability to see it. That we're willing to undergo the divine cleansing that makes us holy. We do the work, we allow God to do the work that only God can do. But it's still a painful thing, right? I think many of you have known these last months I've... Uh, been in a, uh, in a relationship. My girlfriend lives down south, and one of the interesting things about that I haven't for a long time, 
And when you live alone, I only ever see people. You know, I see people in this context a little bit here and there. But there's a lot of things, a lot of the time that I can kind of spend alone, and I don't have to live with anybody else, right? Yeah, glory. What I've found about, uh, what I've found about being in, in a relationship again here after so many years is, is that there's all kinds of ways that I'm impatient, that I'm selfish, and that I'm prideful. I'm just forced to see it just by this sheer proximity and the intimacy. Rose, I, I appreciate that. I know, I know you're not nodding because it's ever happened to you. You're just, you realize you've always seen it in me. You've always seen it in me. There's something like that with the scriptures. There's something like that when you draw near to God, right? You read the scriptures, you read the gospels, and you hear Jesus call the calling that he lays on our lives to lay apart, to set aside everything to come after him, the cost of discipleship. And even just that, I still desire there to be a veil. I still want there to be a protection. Well, maybe we can set that off to the side because I already hear in that, that calling on my life. I already hear in that. The reality that everything in me is not as it should be. I already hear in that that I am less than somebody who has loved the Lord my God with all my heart, all my strength, and all my mind. And that's something that's hard to hear. And that's the point of Exodus 34 and the veil that the people want Moses to wear because to be in the glory of God is to be willing to know that I am less than I have been. But if I'm willing to do that, then God can also make me into somebody like his son. Exodus 34 asks us to come and to confess, to admit to God, and that if we come to God, not as we'd like to present ourselves, but as we are, then as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, which Sammy read, the veil is lifted. And I think the second thing here, as we think about, just reflect on these last chapters of Exodus, is I think we're called to seek out where God comes to us humbly. You know, Paul, as he uses that image in 2 Corinthians, says two things. One, that the veil is lifted, on the one hand, for us who are in Christ, but two, that there's still a veil over those who have not yet to believe. And I think that we perfectly see the image of what Paul is talking about here in the God who comes to us as, as, in the God who comes to us as Jesus, a baby in a manger. The God who, who is immortal glory clothes himself in human flesh so clothes or covers over or veils his glory in the person of Jesus. The world can't see their creator, their savior come in this baby from Nazareth, but we are able. And in a similar way, the church now, which is Christ's continuing body, is that same humble expression of the God who loves us infinitely, wholly and faithfully. Yes, the people in this room, as you look around, may not seem like this infinite, faithful, good love of the God who's created us. But just like Jesus when he came in Nazareth, it has been veiled in a way for those who can't see, but we know and understand that it is. Not everything in the church is the way that it ultimately will be. Paul also says that we see through a glass darkly. But we pray for God to give us eyes to see and ears to see to hear. And this is also the invitation for us to be able to commit to this time and coming and worship together, to commit to reading the scriptures, 
Jesus, who again counsels us, teaches us to commit to spending time in prayer, visiting the sick, to burying the dead, to feeding the hungry, and to sheltering the homeless. In many ways, these are all veiled things to the world around us. But as I was thinking of all those things this week, I feel like I could tell stories in this room of every one of you and how those things have had a transforming or a life-changing moment for you. And now as we get to the end of the Exodus, the same God who has drawn near to creation, who has put a veil so that he could get close to creation, also sends us likewise into the world. Again, God's presence in us is often veiled to those outside. But just like Christ coming in Bethlehem, our humble stature to the outside allows the world to draw near to us and perhaps allows God the opportunity to give them eyes and ears to hear and to see who God is through us. So we come to the conclusion of Exodus with God's invitation to join in this mission until he could fill all of creation and see all and all his glory resound through it. We might draw near to God, desire to, be, desire to be made holy, to be cleansed of our sin. You know, this morning, this table is the, cre- is the place where God and creation and heaven and earth come face to face. We see in it the God who has loved and made and redeemed us. And in it also we're seen as Christ gave himself up for our sake and for sin of the frail, sinful creatures that we are who are in need of God's mercy and his grace. We're invited to participate in the consummation, the union of creation with God to what Exodus points here and now. So shall we conclude this series in the Exodus by living into the fulfillment of the promise that God will be our God and we his treasured possession, his people, and his kingdom of priests. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful here after all of these weeks that you have brought us to the conclusion of um, going through the Exodus together, to being able to see this confession of you who have saved and delivered your people, who have brought them out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and promised them a new land, a new inheritance, a new life. We're thankful, Lord, that we're also the inheritors that we've been grafted in through your Son, and pray that in this moment as we come to this table, you just unveil before us your glory in our presence, in our midst, and in our lives. Allow us, Lord, to take that life into ourselves and to go out into the world proclaiming you in joy and faith and in love. We pray all this in your name.